Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series. My name is Sarah Ellington, Legal Director at global business law firm DLA Piper. In today's podcast, I, together with Dr. Christine Chow from Hermes Equity Ownership Services, will talk about developing business and human rights agendas affecting tech companies, both in terms of managing risks and creating opportunities. Hi, Christine. Hi, Sarah. For the benefit of our listeners, do you want to give a short introduction to yourself and Hermes Equity Ownership Services? Sure. My name is Christine Chow. I'm a director of Hermes EOS. We provide stewardship services to institutional asset owners around the world. I cover technology companies both in the US and Asia. And we see a lot of commonalities in the sectors in terms of the challenges that they face, but also the business opportunities um, as they continue to transform our society. Now, we've seen business and human rights agenda rising up the corporate agenda in recent years across a variety of sectors. But why has this particularly happened in the tech sector, do you think? I think some of the issues, what we refer to as ESG issues traditionally, for example, climate change, 20 years ago, um, we started looking into um, how it affects companies and also um, societies. But at the time we say that, oh, there was no data, we can't measure it, and, and, and there's no systems in place. And in terms of human rights and social issues, it was the same. But things are now changing. Recently, our firm has actually published a paper um, when we conducted some correlation analysis between investment performance and uh, social performance of companies. And um, for the first time, we've actually seen um, correlation between the two. Initially, we, we started this study a couple of years ago. Initially, we saw governance having a correlation with performance. And then we saw environmental performance have a correlation for investment. And for the first time, we're seeing social. And human rights is a big element and big um, uh, important factor in the social performance of companies. And for tech companies, uh, especially in the past few years, um, we have seen more controversies coming out of the role they play. For institutions like banks, we have globally systematically important banks. Insurance companies, we have globally systematically important insurance companies. Are there globally systematically important tech companies? I believe we're seeing some, but we're not actually naming that. And the issues that they have to deal with um, involve data privacy, um, and those that they, they run cloud businesses, cybersecurity is particularly important, not just for themselves, but also for the clients that they represent. Um, some companies even run cloud services for um, governments. So these are uh, important aspects of it. And going back to when, when we talk about tech companies, there are different types as well. There are hardware companies, there are software companies that produce the internal workings of, of, of hardware and also the, the, the newer ones, uh, the social media type. And they all face very different issues, social issues. So we've seen the rise of tech companies and that essentially making the role that tech companies play more important for all of us. Um, but also in terms of outside the tech sector, have you seen any specific influences which have meant that those in the tech sector, but perhaps also more widely, really need have a more driven um, to take these things, 
not more seriously because they've been taken seriously for a, for a long time, but that they've risen to a, a higher level of understanding of risk involved. Absolutely. I'll give an example. Insurance companies, for example, health insurance. More and more insurance companies are now providing um, a custom program that involves collecting health data of individual customers. And the rationale behind that is that they'll be able to provide appropriate discounts if the customer is healthier and they provide incentives. And, and, and this is all good. But there'll come a point where we try to ask the, the questions as investors and shareholder representative is, how is that data being used? Because this is very intimate personal information. How do I know that it is protected? Can I have control? I know that that, that allows me to, to have a more customized service, but how much control do I have? Will that come to a point where I won't be able to get health insurance until I give you my data? That's one aspect of, um, of application that, that is outside of what we call traditional tech. Yeah, and obviously we've seen some um, other issues with using data in that way in order to profile people mm. um, because in the past certainly data has been used in terms of people's surroundings as well as an individual themselves um, and that's led to some um, potential issues with diversity. Yep, and also um, I'll give another example. People used to get excited about the business prospect of having targeted advertising because only... Um, products or services that are relevant to me will be shown to me. But now we're seeing the society beginning to wonder, how do I know if I'm not being discriminated against by an algorithm showing me things that they believe, the algorithm believes that I should be looking at? Does that create echo chambers? Does that create more polarised views? What is the societal impact of having people living in more of their echo chambers and silos? These questions are, are very deep questions because it, it is related to societal peace and the very fabric that, that makes us um, who we are as a functioning society. So there's been a real um, push in some instances from society really waking up to these issues and wanting large companies to think more about it and do more about it. But we've also seen in some instances push um, from a governmental side. Now, that hasn't necessarily filtered through um, to the kind of societal issues that we've just been talking about. Mm. Um, but there's some specific issues that um, governments have seen sit, fit to pass legislation on. Um, and what kind of impact have you seen that having amongst your clients? Mm -hmm. And taking a step back uh, from data privacy, which is very much an ongoing issue, we can uh, take a step back to look at the impact of the 2015 Modern Slavery Act in the UK. When it first came out, uh, we, uh, we started following the um, compliance um, abilities of different companies. Initially, the, the statements were pretty simple, basically outlining the framework in which the company would like to apply or, or plan to, to become compliant. But you know, two, three years down the line, we have seen significant improvements in some of the leaders in the industry. For example, I'd like to, to give uh, uh, M&S as a, as a positive example. In the 2016 statements, which is available uh, online, it talks mainly about plans, policies and structures, what they're going to do. In the 2018 statement, 
which is, is now expanded from three pages to now 10 pages, has improved with key issues that the company has identified in different geographical regions. There are case studies on the actions that they've taken to address the issues, how the companies work with their partners and suppliers to improve the overall supply chain management and with KPIs and clear next steps. And that's a very concrete and very encouraging improvement we've seen. And in a recent conversation as well, um, Brexit has also has an impact on um, companies' efforts in understanding the supply chain and wondering how that could impact a trade uh, relationships. So um, legislation has a big role to play, but what I would say is we cannot legislate uh, integrity. And it is through these legislations that we're seeing individuals within companies rise up to show that you know, they have the dedication to, to not just comply with the letter of the law, but the meaning of the law. So through um, the actual legislation, we've seen a move from, for some companies um, through to more transparency, um, but obviously not for all companies. There's already a number of kind of soft law standards in place and best practice guides. Um, which a number of those companies may well have been complying with or working towards compliance with in any event. Do you see that in recent years those soft law standards have had a further reach and more people really getting to grips with how to implement them on a practical basis? Yes, I believe so. For example, the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, what we generally refer to as the Ruggie Principles, it had a bit of a slow start uh, a number of years ago, but with the help of different stakeholders, from NGOs to actors within companies and also investors, companies are slowly becoming aware of the importance of the different principles. And there's a certain element of education that is needed as well. I think when UNGC uh, was the standard, uh, uh, Global Compact, and some companies have kind of stuck to that and say, OK, we're done. But understanding that principles and standards and expectations continue to evolve and, and, and have an open mind about it um, actually helps, helps companies. And I think that um, different stakeholders need to work together to send a, the, the consistent message and, and to promote that. But certainly um, so, some soft laws um, helps companies to get a better understanding of the fact that improve transparency is in their interest and if they make good use of it not to improve transparency for transparency's sake but actually make use of the information that they retrieve or gather as a result of that exercise then we will see the opportunities evolving. And I think for a long time certainly when the UNGP first came out there was a lot of interest in that from the responsible business teams um, within corporates um, but it hasn't necessarily at that time filtered through to other areas of the corporations and what we've seen from a legal perspective in the last three to five years some instances going back further um, is a rise in the kind of legal consequences of either following or, or not following these principles um, and doing it in a principled and pragmatic way as Ruggie would have envisaged or not being able to do that. And we've seen that through a rise in the number of class actions um, in England, um, in other jurisdictions such as Canada, the US and in Holland being another example, but also in, in other places around the world. Um, and we've seen that this has really made um, 
some in-house legal teams um, sit up and take notice and really then engage more with their responsible business teams in terms of what they're doing around this. This is also uh, the kind of conversation we have with um, <clears throat> companies as well from a shareholder engagement perspective because the group headquarters can no longer ignore the fact that this maybe there are human rights violations that happen um, somewhere else far away from the headquarters and, and it's, 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 um, it's none of their, their business. They have to take into account that there might be legal consequences. And this puts human rights issues, it, it brings it up in the, in the order of priority for the companies to, to address. In terms of boards and the way that risk is managed and the compliance systems within um, companies as well, um, we've seen a few examples of shareholder activism and people standing up in um, AGMs and demanding that there are specific board committees put in place um, in respect of business and human rights issues. And obviously there's um, a lot more investor interest in this now. But that's something that's really come over the, the past few years. Um, and I think you would probably say that you're still on the, on the road to change and being fully accepted and integrated in your clients' choices. Well, to, to take one step back, uh, in terms of shareholder activism, um, Hermes, we, we're, we are an active shareholder, so I wouldn't say we're, we're, we're part of the, the activism movement. We feel that being engaged and have uh, constructive uh, private dialogues is, has always been in our culture and it is only when uh, we felt that we, we needed to, to, to be public then uh, we make a public statement. In terms of board engagement, certainly we agree, we agree that at the board level there needs to be enough expertise to understand the material issues that a company could be facing. So for some of the tech companies, like, let's go back to a little bit on the, on the tech sector as well, uh, human rights related issues such as data privacy or child labour in, in, in a slightly different context, if there is a, a supply chain that in, involves that. We would expect the board to take actions to address and, and, and acquire the right kind of expertise. We would expect self-evaluation of the board every year and hopefully external evaluation every three years to look at whether the board is, has got the right skills to address the material issues. Whether there should be a committee or not, I think we cannot put a, a blanket demand to all companies. It would depend on um, what the companies think as, as necessary. Otherwise, they'll, be, they'll end up having 20 different committees, and this is not what we want to see as well. Sarah, when human rights uh, allegations arise at companies, it tends to start off as a, a bit of news that got reported. How do you work for your clients to help manage that issue uh, from a reputational perspective, but also um, the future impact of it, which might become a legal litigation issue or wider community issues and impact on the ground? Yeah, well, I think the first point to make is that hopefully an issue being reported isn't the first time a company knows about it. Um, so if they follow best practice in terms of um, human rights due diligence, stakeholder engagement, um, and in particular having in place um, local um, access to justice, so um, local level grievance mechanisms, hopefully they would have known this before. And maybe if they've effectively put those systems in place, actually it'll never even reach that first kind of initial press stage. But if it has, then it's important to consider not only the immediate response to that, 
but what might happen in the future. And we can see, and we've seen a number of examples, where people haven't necessarily considered that one um, press release might end up in a large class action later on and therefore not necessarily um, involve their own in-house legal teams or um, external legal counsel to make sure that they're framing any press releases or responses to that appropriately and so that they won't tie themselves down in terms of arguments that they might want to make um, in future litigation should that arise. So, Christine, we've touched on some of the issues that um, are particular to the tech industry, and we've talked about different issues for hardware providers, software providers, um, and other uses of tech. Um, but one particular thing which we've seen going across industries is the real issues in terms of supply chain going to make the hardware that all our tech ultimately has to run on. In 2016, I believe, uh, Amnesty International published a report on child labour uh, issues in the DRC. And a small group of institutional investors and shareholder representatives, including Hermes, uh, got together and said, that, is there anything that we should do and what can we do as investors? So we all read the report. The report was uh, very well written. Uh, it has done some investigative it's not journalism, but investigation into on-the-ground issues and mapped out a supply chain that even the top co's, what we call the, the consumer company at the top of the chain, doesn't know about because um, as investors, <clears throat> we go directly to the top co's, the consumer companies that were mentioned in the report and said, how well do you understand your supply chain and are you aware of these issues that might be happening on the ground? And the general response that we received was actually beyond second tier supplier, we're still trying to figure out what's going on. And as a result of that, we decided to engage along up the supply chain in order to understand what has been going on. And it took us uh, to um, the, the board meeting. We were invited to speak at the board meeting of um, EICC, which is now the Responsible Business Alliance, to share the investor view, why it is important. And it also took us to Shanghai, where the Chinese Mining Association was having a, a discussion with their members on um, human rights issues on the ground. That helps us to realize that in order to, for investor to have an impact, to, to voice our concern, we, we, we need to understand every step along the way and to be part of that conversation. And then it also took us to the OECD um, due diligence, uh, supply chain due diligence uh, meeting in April in 2018 and to be in the same room with um, mining companies, with consumer companies, with battery companies, with the refiners and we all sat together with OECD chairing and, and it was really encouraging. And what we would like to see really is not just transparency for transparency's sake, which is obviously important, but also what companies are going to do once they attain that transparency now, which is beginning to happen. Ultimately, we would like to see as responsible investors and representatives to see a positive impact uh, on the ground. Children who might be involved in the process of mining, their parents actually provide them with better options over time and companies become part of it. 
So we've talked a lot about the issues in the technology sector, but technology also has a real opportunity in terms of the part that it can play in making some of these issues slightly less difficult to manage. Technology should be seen as an enabler, but not a silver bullet. In fact, um, Hermes, we have uh, published a few blogs on what we're asking companies to look into is the potential of technology. So people get really excited about blockchain because it's got such a number of different potential applications. Um, and that's not only looking at increasing transparency in the supply chain, but also other potential applications that are perhaps a bit closer to home for us on a personal level. Yes, of course. Uh, some of the areas that uh, I believe banks have been working on is to give control of personal data back to individuals, um, an area that um, is related to, to all of us and we're concerned about because uh, we, we give out our data left, right and centre. We are asked to give out our data left, right and centre now to prove, of our, to prove our identity. We're beginning to wonder where does all this information go and how is it being used? Digital identities is one of the areas that uh, blockchain has potential applications. And what do I mean by that? Um, now, if we want to go to a bank and open a bank account, it might take you two, three hours because they would need a lot of documentation, then you need to prove of address to prove that you're actually the person who you are. So one of the areas that I believe banks are working on is um, giving the data privacy uh, control back to, back to customers. So looking into the future, we might be able to store our blockchain and validated personal information on an app on our phone. So when we go and open, go to open an account or try to prove our identity, we can release the bit of information that is only relevant to that particular transaction to the counterparty. But individuals re retain control, and I believe this is some of the things and technologies that banks are working on at the moment. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you mentioned that because actually um, we're looking at that as a firm as a part of a different project that we're working on um, which relates to access to justice and technology and in particular the ability to use blockchain for identity purposes not only for um, those in this part of the world that might want to do that for their specific bank accounts but also in order to enable more people um, to have access to their identity and be able to prove their identity um, and we're writing a paper on that and we'll be presenting it at a summit in May 2019. So there are a lot of different types of applications in, in blockchain or other types of emerging tracking technologies and some of them where we have also touched on in uh, our discussion paper. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, we've recently been working on a um, discussion paper which looks at the possibility of using um, blockchain to increase transparency in supply chains and enable um, brands, for example, at the top of a supply chain to be able to be sure of the provenance of the raw materials that it's using in, in its products um, so that it can explain that to consumers and ultimately so that it can be sure of what's happened um, further down the supply chain. Part of that discussion has been that there's limits to um, how valuable that information is mm -hmm. in terms of whether enough emphasis is being put on the right information having gone in from further down the supply chain, whether the right issues are definitely being focused on when that information is put in, but certainly a positive starting point. Absolutely. Um, 
there is a technical aspect of, of the garbage in, garbage out issue coming from any technologies, not just blockchain. But um, at the same time, we're seeing encouraging signs, some of the examples that tracking the health and safety of workers, tracking their household income, tracking attendance rate of, of children going to school. All this is going to help. But what lies at the center of it is ultimately, can there be a price differentiator? Are people pay, willing to pay for it? And looking at the rise of responsible consumption. Well, many thanks to Dr. Christine Chow for coming and sharing her insights. And I know that we've worked on many exciting things together before, and this is only the start of the discussions between us and more widely. Thank you, Sarah, for having me here, and I look forward to further discussion and collaboration. This has been an episode of the DLA Piper Tech Law podcast series. Do tune in for more episodes coming soon. And for more information, download the 2018 European Tech Index Report.